last, for the last four weeks, we've been uh, covering a series that I'm just calling the life and teachings of Jesus. So the life and teachings of Jesus. And uh, if you've been at Seven Hills Fellowship very long, you know that sometimes we do topical series. Uh, sometimes we cover, you know, really random, obscure books from the Old Testament. And when I say, you know, we're going to have a series sermon, a ser- sermon series on the book of Habakkuk, some of you go, is he trying to trick me? Is there really a book of Habakkuk, you know? And, uh, and then sometimes we just need to come back to Jesus, right? And, uh, and so that's what we're doing in this sermon series. Um, and so we're going to start that today. Just We're going to look at a passage of Scripture. I'm not going to worry about putting it up on the screen right now, but just trust me, it's going to be all about Jesus. So let's take one moment, and, uh, and before we begin, let me pray. Father, uh, thank you that you've called us to this place. I uh, thank you, Father, that, um, that nobody's here by accident, uh, whether they think they are or not. Uh, that you have drawn them to this place because you have an experience for them or you have something um, that you want them to hear or you have a conversation that you want them to be engaged in. Father, whatever it is, whatever reason you've drawn us and these people to this place this morning, I pray that no one would be able to leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. So, Father, we pray all these things today. I'm asking that your spirit would be in this room and among us we pray all these things again in your son's name. Amen. All right, so uh, very quickly, some of you out there um, are probably World War II buffs. It's just my guess. And uh, I, know, I don't know a ton about World War II. I'm not exactly a World War II buff. But what I do know is that it was a fascinating time in world history. It's absolutely fascinating. It's just hard to believe that there could be an individual that was so almost purely and utterly, use whatever word you want there, broken or evil, call it what you will, and could, in, could, uh, could really spread chaos throughout so much of the world. You know the story. You know that Hitler essentially uh, m- you know, marched through and took over Europe, right? So Czechoslovakia fell, and Poland fell, and Norway fell, and Greece fell, and the Netherlands fell, and Belgium fell, and France fell. And all these people were essentially getting crushed by the Germans until all that was really left that hadn't been conquered yet it was part of Europe, was ultimately, uh, or, or Western Europe, was really Great Britain, right? And so Great Britain was sitting out there as an island, unconquered. But Hitler was on his way to take them out, right? And, and what was interesting is that Great Britain, their greatest strength was, was probably the fact that they were an island, and so they were you know, physically sort of set apart from the rest of Western Europe. But not only that, they had the, the world's largest navy. And so this great naval fleet. And so Germany, when they were preparing to attack Britain, decided the best way to overcome their naval fleet wasn't to try to build their own naval fleet, fleet of ships, but was rather to do something very, very different. And uh, and essentially, their idea was that they were going to mass-produce as many submarines as possible in order to try to to essentially bomb the uh, or torpedo the British Navy into submission, right? So I've got some cool pictures of submarines here. These are all German submarines. I couldn't begin to tell you what kind of submarine that is, but it's a big metal submarine that shoots torpedoes. And then we have another submarine right here. This also is yet another submarine. I'm not sure exactly how they got that, but it's another you know, German submarine from World War II. And then we've got a final picture here of different types of submarines, so you can kind of see the different technologies that went into these various German submarines. And uh, so here, here was the deal. Here was the goal of Hitler, the goal of Germany, was not only to try to paralyze the British Navy, but was also to ultimately cut off the island of Britain from North America. And the reason why this was important is because 
because the rest of Europe was already conquered, uh, Britain couldn't get any supplies uh, from Western Europe. And so all of the supplies that they could get, food, gasoline, war materials, etc., etc., could only come from North America, from Canada and the United States. And so what Germany was planning on doing was basically trying to drive a wedge between Britain and between North America. And they did that by sending out their submarines into all the shipping lanes. And so by the end of World War II, the German submarines had sunk almost 6,000 different ships carrying supplies back and forth from America or Canada all the way to England. It was just amazing. And there was a point at which probably in, uh, probably in 1940 where Germany had almost succeeded. Now, the, the thing is, that Britain needed about a million tons of supplies each week just to, to stay alive, just to sort of maintain their existence, much less fight against Germany. And Germany had really been eating into that supply that was coming across the Atlantic. And so the battle that waged between the British Navy and between these submarines was called the Battle of the Atlantic or the Battle for the Atlantic. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's a couple quotes from Winston Churchill. The first thing he said was this. The battle of the Atlantic, that stretch of water between North America and between Britain, the battle of the Atlantic was the dominating factor all through the war. In other words, Churchill is saying this is the most important thing, is the battle for the Atlantic. Never for one moment could we forget that everything happening elsewhere on land or at sea or in the air depended ultimately on its outcome, right? Because all the supplies were coming from North America to Germany. And he says this, he goes on to say, the only thing that ever frightened me during the war was the U-boat or the Underseeboot, the (laughs) U-boat, peril, right? And again, their goal was to sever ties between Britain and North America, and they almost succeeded. Now, two things happened to turn the tide of the war and actually ultimately caused not only Britain, but the Allied powers to win. Two things happened. One, uh, the Allied powers actually were able to break the codes that the Germans were using to communicate uh, from one uh, undersea boat to another or one submarine to another and back to Germany. And the Germans were so confident that the, the British or the Americans couldn't break those codes that they just sort of spoke openly. And they said, all right, we're going to send some you know, submarines to the shipping lane and we're going to attack these ships that are coming. And we're going to do it at you know, 0500 hours. And I don't know what that means, but I, I think it's a, that's a, how armies talking about 0500 hours. And we're going to bomb them, and we're going to shoot torpedoes, and blah, blah, blah. And so the Germans just openly, over the, you know, sort of their, their unbreakable code-speaking way, were telling, you know, how, when, where, and all that about how they were going to attack these vessels going back and forth across the Atlantic. And so what happened is, is the British got their hands on a little machine called the Enigma machine, which is a picture right here, which is how the Germans communicated back and forth. And so when the British got their hands on this Enigma machine, they were able to crack the code. And so all of a sudden, whenever Germany was sending U-boats out to attack various parts of the ocean or various ports or various ships, the British Navy, as well as the United States and Canadian Navy, knew exactly where they were going to hit those ships, when they were going to hit them, and, and how, right? And so one of the things that they did is it gave the Americans and the British the ability to simply avoid where those submarines were going to be. And so they avoided them and made their way on and delivered their goods to Britain. The second thing that allowed the tide to turn in the battle for the Atlantic is that in 1941, the United States got involved, right? Up until that point in time, it had just been Britain and a few other allies. And we got another picture right here that's a cool, it's a piece of American propaganda during World War II. That's actually a depth charge that an American sailor is getting ready to throw over a boat. But what had happened is that Britain was pretty close to falling, 
Britain was about to give in. They probably couldn't do it any longer. They couldn't win the fight on their own until in 1941, the U.S. stepped in and said, all right, we're going to commit all of our troops and all of our funds to helping you defeat this enemy. And so those two things, being able to break the codes, and then this advocate of the United States entering in were the very things that allowed the Allied powers in Britain to survive. Now, what does that have to do with anything we're going to talk about today? All right. So here's what it has to do. It has everything to do. If you remember, the goal of Germany was really to drive a wedge between Britain and between North America, right? In the same way, when Satan tempts you, when Satan tempts us, what he's doing is he's trying to drive a wedge between you and God. It's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you go, hey, God doesn't really love you. You Or he's trying to say, you know, God can't forgive you for those sins that you committed last night or last week or a year ago or 10 years ago. He tries to drive a wedge between you and God, right? And that's why we need to take a look today at this passage, because that's exactly what Satan does to us. But the second thing that we see in this story is that, like Britain, we need an advocate to fight on our behalf, because we cannot win this battle by ourselves. Does that make sense? We can't do it on our own. We have to have a hero that fights for us. Let's look very quickly at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and we'll see Jesus uh, taking on this advocate role on our behalf. Let's read verses 1 through 12. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now remember, in the Old Testament, Esau, after a one day of hunting, traded in his birthright for a pot of stew. Some of you don't understand how that could happen, Men in this room get it. Like we understand that all it takes is about a day of not eating and we're ready to trade it all in for a snicker bar, right? So that, that's a big deal, right? One time my dad was in survival camp when he was in training to go to Vietnam. And uh, when he was in survival camp, they went about a week without eating food. They just threw you out in the wilderness and, and tried to catch you. And you had to kind of eat what you could and catch what you could. He was so hungry that on the third day he said he ate his tube of toothpaste. Does that make sense? So Jesus had been out there for 40 days. He's alone and he is starving. Verse 3. So the devil said to him, and listen to these words, if you are the son of God. Okay? Satan's name is the, the deceiver, the accuser. There's different names for him in scripture. But listen to the insidious nature of this question. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a double entendre then. Now, in order to understand this passage of Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, you have to understand that what happened immediately before this was that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and we're told that the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus and that God's voice echoed out so that others could hear, but particularly his own son, Jesus could hear him say these words, you are my son 
whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What did Jesus need to hear before he went out into the desert for 40 days, alone, starving, tempted by Satan? God knew that his son needed to hear, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So for all eternity, God the Father and God the Son existed in complete and perfect unity, never separated. And here, God reassures Jesus by saying, you're still my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And it says the Bible then, the Bible then tells us that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he didn't eat and he was alone for 40 days. And during that 40 days, this passage tells us that Jesus was continuously being tempted by the devil or tempted by Satan. Now, last week we talked about these three temptations, right? Satan tempted Jesus to turn a stone into bread. And essentially the temptation there was to doubt God's provision. In other words, Satan was going, do you really believe that God's going to give you what you need? right? Is he going to provide you with what you need? And Jesus withstood that temptation exactly where we fail. The second temptation was where Satan said, hey, worship me and I'll give you the world, right? I'll give you everything. Everybody's going to bow down to you and worship. You'll have all the power of the world. And Jesus withstood that temptation to doubt God's plan. Does that make sense? Same thing that some of us do. Some of us doubt that God has a plan for our lives. We doubt that God has a plan for what true and healthy humanity looks like. And we try to We try to create our own plan instead, but Jesus withstands Satan's temptation to doubt his plan. And then the third thing we see as part of this temptation is that Satan dares him to throw himself down from the highest part of the temple and says, basically, just see if God won't rescue you. And again, it's it's really Satan tempting Jesus to doubt God's presence because Jesus quotes from a place in Exodus where the children of Israel say, is the Lord with us or not? And so Jesus perfectly obeys exactly where we fail over and over and over again. Jesus didn't doubt God's provision, his plan, or his presence. But today we're going to talk very briefly about the devil's most insidious attack upon Jesus. And you've already seen it in these verses. In in verse 3 and verse 9, Satan echoes the same question into Jesus' hungry and lonely and exhausted mind and heart. He says, and we've got it on the screen here, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, what is the devil attempting to do? He's attempting to attack Jesus at the very core, at the very heart, at the very epicenter of his strength, which is his relationship to God. He's attempting to drive a wedge between Jesus and his father. And this is essentially the same tactic that Satan used with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that Satan came down and tempted Eve, and he basically said, did God really say? And what Satan was doing, again, very insidiously and and very sneakily, what he was trying to get Eve to do was to doubt whether or not God loved her, was to doubt whether or not God was for her, was to doubt whether or not God was truly good, was to doubt whether or not she was really in union with God, and she failed, but exactly where she failed, Jesus obeyed. What Satan did was to tempt Jesus to doubt his relationship with God. And again, you can just imagine Jesus, right? It's the end of 40 days. He's lonely. He's starving. He's been continuously tempted. He's almost broken. And he's probably beginning to question his own sanity. And in that moment, he withstands the temptation to doubt God's goodness and to doubt his relationship with God. Now, here's something that's really interesting. 
actually read a couple of different journals on this, psychological journals, uh, one of which talked about the idea of brainwashing. And there's a quote here from the American Psychological Association. But it says this. It says, brainwashing, when a prisoner is captured by an enemy and that, that enemy essentially tries to brainwash them, the quote is this, an impairment of autonomy, an inability to think independently, and a disruption of beliefs and affiliations. In this context, brainwashing refers to the involuntary re-education of basic beliefs and values. And essentially, as I read about this idea of brainwashing, the goal was to separate someone, a captive, completely from everyone else, and to starve them, and to make it so they didn't have much sleep, and to put them all under all this pressure. And if you tried them and tempted them long enough, eventually you could get them to doubt the very deepest core beliefs that they held. There was another article that I read that compared battered wives, women, women living in homes with abusive husbands, and POWs. This was a, uh, a paper from the Midwestern Sociological Association. And in it, there was a quote that said this, both captors and batterers were successful in destroying the individual's self-identity. Does that make sense? And so what POWs and battered wives and brainwashing all have in common is an attempt to get us to doubt our self-identity. Does that make sense? That's exactly what Satan is doing here. He's basically saying, if you're really the son of God, is that really your identity? Are you really sure that you're God's son? Are you really sure that God loves you? Are you really sure that God is taking care of you? And Jesus was in the position of a POW or a battered wife. He was alone. Part of the research that I read for all of this showed that the number one critical success factor for POW surviving was just the ability to communicate with other people to need to know that they weren't alone. And Jesus was separated from all other people. And at his weakest, Satan comes to Jesus and attacks his very identity as the son of God. And again, Jesus withstands at the very place where you and I fail. The question is, what do we do with this passage? right, remember the the story of the German U-boats at the beginning and how primarily there were two things that allowed them to overcome the German threat. The first was that they were able to crack the codes of the Germans communicating to one another And so they were able to know how and when the Germans were actually going to attack, right? And so what that enabled them to do was it enabled them to avoid temptation. And so part of us understanding that the way that Satan is going to attack you is by causing you to question your relationship with God. Part of what you can do to avoid that attack is to to constantly be filled up with the Holy Spirit to strengthen yourself through the reading of God's word by by engaging with other believers, by not allowing yourself to be alone spiritually and maybe relationally. I know there's different levels of that depending on on whether or not you're an extrovert or an introvert. The other thing that we see that helped in this was that uh, not only were they able to avoid uh, attack, but they're also able to defend themselves, right? And that's the other thing that I think we can take away from this is that when we're attacked by Satan, we can actually proclaim the gospel to ourselves, right? Romans 8.1 says this, that there's no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when Satan comes to you and tempts you to despair, when Satan comes to you and tempts you to say, you know what, there's no way you can God be God's child because you did it too much, you did it too many times, you need to proclaim the gospel to yourself. You need to proclaim John 3.16 to yourself that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, your Father. And not only that, but when we know how and where Satan is going to attack, we can actually attack back by proclaiming the gospel to others. The other thing that I think we can take away from this passage and also from this analogy of World War II is that just like the British, 
Just like the Israelites, we need a hero. We need an advocate who fights on our behalf. When we doubt God's love for us, the answer comes in the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave us his son to be our hero to fight for us, to fight on our behalf. And Jesus obeyed precisely where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus obeyed precisely where the Israelites failed. And Jesus obeyed precisely where you and I fail every day. The message of this passage, again, as last week, is that Jesus isn't just our model, but Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our hero who fights on our behalf so that nothing can separate us from God our Father. And his declaration over each of us that have trusted in his son Jesus, that he loves us as his daughters and his sons, and he is pleased with us, not just because of your record, but in spite of it, he's pleased with you because of his own son. Here the words of Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and 39. They say this, In all things we are more than conquerors through him. Right? You are not a conqueror because of your obedience. You are not a conqueror because you've done more good stuff than bad stuff. You're not a conqueror because you haven't done that bad thing in a while. You are only a conqueror through him, that is Jesus, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, to drive a wedge between us and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, I love the fact that the theme of today's um, worship service was forgiveness, that it was the fact that, that God has forgiven us in his son Jesus that no matter where you've been or where you are right now, that if you trust in Jesus alone, that you're forgiven. And that there's, there's no sin that is too bad. There's no sin that's too egregious. There's no sin that you've committed too many times that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus because you don't overcome your own sinfulness and you don't overcome Satan through your own performance, but rather through Jesus' performance on your behalf. The problem is, is that we forget this. That's why we proclaim it every single week because we all forget it over and over and over again, and we need to be reminded over and over and over again, which is exactly why God gave us this meal called the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today. And so if you'll, um, in a moment, look, there's a table to my right and to your left with bread and wine. On my left and your right, there's a table with bread and grape juice. Back here in the upper section, there's a table with bread and grape juice. And when the time is right, when you've had time to, to wrestle viscerally with how much you do or don't believe that God has forgiven you, you can get up, tear off a piece of bread, and dip it in this wine. But let me quickly say this. This meal is a family meal. It's only for those people who are in the family of God. And the only way to enter into the family of God is by trusting in God's Son for your salvation completely. Does that make sense? And so if you haven't come to that point yet, I would just simply ask you to sit back and, and watch the people of God as they eat this family meal. And, and my reminder to you is this is that if, if you've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, but you believe that there's been a wedge that has driven, been driven between you and God, then I want you to know that that wedge can be completely removed. It has been completely removed because of Jesus fighting on your behalf. He is your hero. And so this meal today is a reminder that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now simply because you are his child. And so let me ask you to take your time and, uh, and to really think about whether or not you believe 
that Jesus did everything required in order for you to be perfect before his Father in heaven. Wrestle with it. Uh, Believe it. Let it sink down not only into your head but all the way down into your heart. And when you go and you take that bread and dip it into the wine or into the grape juice, I want you to understand that it is God declaring to you that you are forgiven and that now you are his child in whom he is well pleased because of his son, Jesus. Let's take one moment and pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this meal. And Father, I pray that we would believe in our heads, but more importantly in our hearts, that this bread and wine communicate to us that Jesus, our hero, fought for us and died in our place. Father, I pray that this bread and wine today would be a proclamation uh, to us, but also to the others in this room, that, uh, that we can't be separated from you. Once we've trusted in your son, Jesus, Father, we've been adopted forever. And so, Father, I pray that we would grasp the realities of the gospel and of this meal, again, deep, deep down in our hearts, Father, that we might go out into the world and live holy lives uh, because of the grace that we have been given in your son, Jesus. So, Father, it's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.